Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm talking to Tom Quinn. Tom is a PhD student at Deakin University in Australia. And we will be talking about Tom's package called Proper. Proper allows you to analyze relative data, the kind of data you get from a high-throughput sequencing experiment. So I just want to warn you that some parts of the podcast are going to be rather technical, and you have an easier time following our conversation if you open Tom's preprint and keep it handy. So when we reference, for example, standard log ratio or variance of log ratios, you can look up what that means. You can find the link to Tom's preprint at our website, bioinformatics.chat slash PROPR. That's the page for this episode. Okay, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So Tom, uh, you recently got an MD degree from the State University of New York, and uh, now you're in Australia writing some R and C++ code. That's not a uh, typical career path for a young doctor, I imagine. So tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, it certainly is not the usual career path. Um, my background is I grew up in New York, um, not the city part for the international audience, but way upstate, more closer to the Canadian border. And uh, I studied up there. I, I Yes, I went to medical school up there as well. Um, my interest was and still is in understanding the biology of mental illness. I had a keen interest in psychiatry and biological psychiatry. And while I was studying in medical school, I had a, a great opportunity to work in a psychiatric genetics lab. There, I uh, started getting into working with data, analyzing data, uh, at first in the machine learning domain, trying to use various um, classifiers, SVMs, neural networks to predict disease states or therapeutic responses. And I just sort of fell in love with the whole process of data analysis. And uh, as a day-to-day kind of activity, it's it just it calls to me and it keeps me going. And, and so I decided a good next step was to pursue it full-time as, as an academic student, a PhD student. Interesting. So what kind of uh, mental illnesses are you interested in? I know that uh, schizophrenia is big on genetics. What's, what are the things that you research? Well, these days, uh, most of my time is spent more in methods development, um, coming up with new ways of analyzing data. But I am interested in generally um, what are the biological processes that lead to mental uh, dis-ease, whether um, these are genetic and inherited factors or even uh, genetic changes that accumulate due to responses in the environment. I am fortunate to be involved with one project now that's looking at how... Uh, schizophrenic medications work, how they affect uh, cellular transcript transcriptomes. And so this has been a, a joy to work with. But for the most part, I'm a little bit distant to uh, psychiatric research right now, although it, it's always in the back of my mind and something that I'd like to get involved with more um, as, as time goes on. Okay, got it. So tell us about your package proper. What does it do? Yeah, so this is... Um, this has been a, a great project to, to be involved in. 
It all started with a paper that's written by this uh, professor out in uh, Queensland by the name of Dave Lavelle. And he published a really interesting article discussing this concept of proportionality. And I, we're going to be talking about this a lot, I, I'm sure, throughout this podcast. But the the basic premise of this is that a lot of the data we look at as biologists has a certain property to it, a certain nature about it, which is that it's it's relative. It's, it's essentially a type of percentage-based data, whether we acknowledge it openly or not. And when you analyze percentage-based data or this kind of special relative data, certain conventional analyses simply do not work. And one of them uh, in particular is correlation. And this was first identified in the 1800s by Pearson. And what you get are these things called spurious correlations. That is, things which are not correlated in true absolute space. When viewed and studied in this constrained type of data appear as if they are associated. And the whole purpose of proper is to provide an alternative way of understanding associations between uh, features, whether those are genes or transcripts or any other type of modality, that um, using a method that respects uh, the relative nature of data and provides valid results in that context. Yeah, so the way I understand the term spurious correlation is when you gather some data, you compute the uh, traditional Pearson correlation, and for instance, it gives you a large correlation, but in fact, it's a small correlation, or it gives you a positive correlation, but in fact, it's a negative correlation, right? Do you happen to know any horror stories? Like, were there any papers retracted over these spurious correlations? Ooh, that's a good question. Um I don't know. Uh, one of the concerning things about spurious correlations is that when we move into the domain of next generation sequencing, high throughput sequencing, where you're measuring tens of thousands of genes simultaneously, uh, spurious correlation is no longer a one-off thing, but it becomes a ubiquitous event. So when you're studying 10,000 genes and you're looking at correlative structures between 10,000 squared pairs, um, you know, you're, it's no longer just one possible spurious correlation that's appeared, but there's a systematic thousands and thousands of spurious correlations that appear throughout the data. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's try to explain where this danger or when this danger of spurious correlations appears. First, maybe it's worth to clarify what exactly we mean by relative data and maybe give some examples in like usual biological essays. Absolutely. Um, so relative data is a type of data where the numbers themselves are not so much meaningful, except as they are relative to another number within that data set. So this comes up quite notably when studying um, next generation sequencing data, and this has been my focus uh, in, in the development of proper and the application of proper. So we have this idea of, um, well, let's step back a second. So the way these, the way we collect this kind of data, and so this is high throughput sequencing, this is getting um, gene expression counts or transcript expression counts for thousands of genes simultaneously. And this is done with a sequencer. And the way the sequencer works is that there's a sequencing depth. 
And the sequencing depth is the number of transcripts that will get sequenced during that assay. All of the information that you collect from a sequencer is essentially relative to that sequencing depth to the total amount of sequencing that's done, such that if there's more of one particular gene in your pool that you're studying, it actually lowers the measured values of all of the other genes. So the actual numbers you get back from the sequencer are not meaningful in their own right. However, they retain the ability to be meaningful relative to one another. That is to say, if you got 10 counts of one gene and 20 counts of another gene, that's equivalent to getting 100 counts of one gene and 200 counts of another gene. And this makes sense if you're familiar with how sequencing works um, and you think about sequencing depth, that if you increase the sequencing depth, that's going to increase the uh, recorded abundances for all of your genes or transcripts or whatever it is that you're looking at. Okay, so let's go with this uh, example of RNA-seq. So imagine I have an RNA-seq experiment and I analyze many samples. Now, if I take the correlation between different samples, so I look at how the expression levels in sample one correlate with the expression levels in sample two. Although these are still relative data, this is not the kind of correlation that you are warning against, right? Correct. Um, so what, what's the difference between, like, what, what specific kind of uh, correlation uh, presents the, this danger? So we're interested in analyzing correlations between genes. So I've been motivated by a strong interest in gene co-expression networks, gene co-expression modules, looking at genes as uh, interrelated and potentially um, co-regulated systems of functional units. Now, from this lens, um, this is where spurious correlations can certainly emerge. Due to the fact that sequencers produce relative data. If there is any differences between your samples and how your samples are prepped, when you're analyzing it, spurious correlations can emerge. Yeah, so maybe to give a um, like an easy-to-understand example, if you're comparing uh, two genes, right, or two transcripts, the expression of two transcripts, and... Um, if their expression is independent, so in theory it shouldn't be correlated at all, right? But you also have a third transcript, which sometimes is uh, highly expressed and the other times it's very lowly expressed. And so when you take this um, these ratios, then the two uncorrelated genes, their relative expression will be low when the third gene is highly expressed and their relative expression will be high when the third gene is lowly expressed. And so it will appear that they are highly expressed or lowly expressed simultaneously, right? And this will lead to a spurious correlation. Yes, that's exactly correct. Uh, And going back to um, my comment on how sequencers work, this is is implicit in this uh, 
idea that the increased abundance of one of those genes alters the abundance of all the other genes. The third variable that uh, you are discussing there, say a third transcript that can change the apparent correlation between two other transcripts, does not necessarily have to be a third variable, but could also just be the total amount of sequencing that was done for that sample. Right. Although, like, if it's the total amount of sequencing, that's easy to account for because we always know the sequencing depth. So we can always normalize by the sequencing depth. So we can essentially assume that uh, at the beginning we normalize, right? If we have this matrix where the rows are samples and the columns are transcripts and we have expression counts, we can always uh, traverse by rows, and for every row, we divide the row by the sum of all numbers in that row. So essentially, we get, we get percentages, and when once we move to the percentages, it no longer depends on the sequencing depth, right? Mm, yes, I think you are right there. For instance, we can say that in this sample, uh, the uh, transcript one is expressed at maybe um, one TPM, right? One transcript per million, meaning that uh, over million transcripts, we expect one to, to belong to this particular isoform. And uh, that, that no longer assumes any particular sequencing depth. And so we can, can compare these numbers between samples, right? On the, on the relative yes. scale. Uh, but the problem is that once we compare them like within the sample across samples, if it makes sense, right? So we, we take like two columns of this matrix and we look at how these um, TPM values, transcript per, per million values, how they correlate right. across all samples for these two transcripts, right? There we have a problem because uh, they can... Um, get high or low simultaneously because of some third or some sum of um, the expression of all the other genes. Yes, that's a that's actually a really good way of, of putting it. And you're right, when you think about the data in, in that normalized sense as a transcript per million, say, this is where you see quite clearly that some some third variable can be altering uh, the the signal that you are that you're wanting to look at for the reason that this third variable if it is in large quantities then what you expect would be say a, a default of one transcript per million can actually be lower without having any different um, absolute quantity in the pool of, of rna that you are studying mm-hmm in your package proper and also like in this general line of work um, that is um, pioneered by Lavelle, there are certain building blocks, right? So I'm thinking about uh, CLR and ALR, right? Yes. Upon which the more complex metrics build. So yes. why don't we talk maybe about CLR for, for now? Yeah, absolutely. So... The all of this borrows from this uh, way of thinking about math and numbers, uh, known as compositional data analysis. And so this begins sort of in the uh, '80s with um, this guy uh, Atkinson. I think it's useful to first consider, uh, at least for me, 
So, again, I, I, as you've heard from my bio, I've approached this problem as coming from a biological background, from a, from a medical clinical background. I'm not a mathematician. And so sometimes the math concepts, uh, I need, I need to have some, some more, uh, background for these to make sense for me. And I think when you think about what we were talking about this issue with the fact that you have relative information, that if you had known, if you can know somehow a specific transcript or a specific gene that definitely had fixed abundance, no matter what the relative amounts, no matter what any other uh, genes have gone up or down. You always knew this was fixed. You had some sort of spike in piece of uh, DNA that you used to calibrate your machine. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was thinking about spike-ins. Those are the um, transcripts that are artificially added, and you know their exact amount so that you can quantify the other transcripts relative to this one. Exactly. So if you had that um, absolute spike-in that you knew for sure was the same abundance for all of your samples... And it may appear as three transcripts per million in one sample, but two transcripts per million in another sample. But you knew for sure that it was always the same amount and that the differences across your samples just had to do with uh, changes in um, sequencing depth or changes in the expression of other genes. Then you could more or less back calculate the absolute quantities from the relative quantities. Right. In the absence of such a spike-in, we can use, albeit uh, it's an imperfect estimate, an estimate of uh, some sort of stable reference, and, and they use the geometric mean for this. And so this is how I think about this, the CLR, the Centered Log Ratio Transformation, is it's a way of transforming the data, putting it relative to the geometric mean under perhaps the assumption or the hope that that geometric mean approximates some sort of stable value that is across all of your samples. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I think about it is um, this, the CLR, it's a composition of two transformations, and you can actually uh, consider them in uh, either order. Well, they change a little bit, but basically the first transformation is taking the logarithms Right, and this is a very important transformation for uh, relative data because if you think about it, the um, the data are relative, meaning that they all have like every row of this matrix has a certain factor associated with it. So all the relative numbers in that row are some absolute numbers divided by the same constant. Okay, in in that row. And so it is quite natural to take a logarithm of every number, and then you can, when you subtract uh, the uh, numbers within the row, that common factor, well, it becomes a common addend, and it just goes away, right? If you, if you take a logarithm of like x minus logarithm of y, any common factor or common divisor that X and Y had, it just magically goes away. Which is mm -hmm. basically the same if, if you divide them, right? The common factor goes away. So if you subtract yes. their logarithms, the common factor uh, goes away. And so yep. it's quite natural to take the log transform of all the quantities, right? And then the CLR, which, which stands for um, 
cent centered, centered moderation. Yes. Yeah. So centered comes from the fact that we just subtract and the geometric mean once we take the logarithms, the geometric mean becomes just the arithmetic mean of uh, of the logarithms. Right? Yes. So the the logarithm of the geometric mean becomes the um, arithmetic mean of the logarithms, right? And we basically center this vector by subtracting the uh, average value. So now the um, average of all the numbers equals zero, right? And so I was curious, um, the, the CLR is very central to this line of uh, research to all these papers. So your paper, and the paper by Lavelle, and then the paper by a third guy who I don't remember. Do you remember his name? Um, there's a, there's another uh, now set of papers by a man named Jonas. Is this the one that you're thinking of? Uh, maybe. I, I'm so, so sorry. Herb, I don't remember. And, ERB? Oh, yeah. Herb. Yeah. That Herb, one. yes. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, maybe we should mention there are a lot of people like who are not first or last authors on, on these papers. Uh, of course. They, yeah, uh, yeah. Deserve some credit, too. But... Yeah, so the, the CLR plays a um, centered <laughs> role, <laughs> forgive me for the pun, yes. uh, in, in this line, line of research. And I was curious, why is it important? Do you know why it is important to subtract this uh, arithmetic mean of logarithms or, or divide by the geometric mean? Well, there's a, there's a few things that you've brought up there. So, yes, uh, most of this work does involve the centered log ratio transformation of the data. As I understand it, the reason why we do this with regard to proportionality is a little bit different than the reason why this is done otherwise. The reason why we do it with proportionality has something to do with yet another measurement, which I think we'll get into shortly. But I do want to emphasize that the centered log ratio, in my mind, is a bit of an imperfect way of um, massaging the data so that everything's on the same playing field. Now, as you brought this out, as you're subtracting out a common factor from the data effectively by doing this um, log ratio transformation, the assumption is, is that the geometric mean is the common factor that's being subtracted out, but that may not necessarily be true. Well, not, not really, because if you um, if you really subtract those numbers, right, then, then it doesn't matter. Like this, this geometric mean, it becomes just another common factor that is, again, it cancels out. So let's say I uh, sequence to, uh, I, I do RNA sequencing and I have two transcripts to isoforms that I'm interested in isoform 1 and isoform 2 and I have yes. their expression levels right and so I know that for isoform 1 I got maybe 10,000 uh, reads and for isoform 2 I have 1,000 reads okay so yes. I don't know about well, I I do know the uh, sequencing depth, but it doesn't matter because it's a common factor, and I don't know the total amount of RNA in the cell or in the sample, but again, I know it's a common factor. So these uh, ten thousand and one thousand, they're relative on the same scale, and if I take the um, 
the ratio of them, which is 10, then I know that 10 is uh, uh, ignoring all these statistical complications, right? Random sampling and all that. Mm -hmm. But 10 is more or less the ratio of the number of ah. the physical number of molecules of the first isoform and of the second isoform right yes. so uh, if if i then divide them by the geometric mean so we have 10000 we have 1000 their uh, geometric mean is uh, i think like 3000 something right if i divide them i get what um something like 3 and 1 third more or less, right? Uh, but their ratio is still more or less ten. Well, it it, it will be it will be like uh, square root of ten and one over square root of ten, and their ratio will be exactly ten. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, okay. the, so the ratio doesn't change. Yes, you are you're absolutely correct. I, I understand where you're coming from now. Um, yes, when you're looking at log ratios between, uh, say, different genes or different transcripts. Any type of scaling factor, say the geometric means, uh, presumably cancel out or mostly cancel out. Yeah. However, there are contexts in which you consider just the um, centered log ratio transformed data without necessarily yeah. looking at log ratios. And so the terminology, the centered log ratio, is a little bit confusing because the log ratio that is being referred to by the centered log ratio term is the log ratio of the abundance to the geometric mean, not necessarily the abundance of one transcript to another transcript. Absolutely, yeah. Now, when we're talking about just log ratios, as you pointed out there, the scaling factors are not very, are not meaningful or not relevant. And one thing we can do with log ratios because scaling factors don't matter is is look at is consider the log ratios just on their own right and their own merit and there's a really useful measurement of association and this dates back to the work by uh, Atkinson which is looking at the variance of the log ratio so how much does a log ratio vary so now you're talking about the the actual log ratio right between two columns not not this uh so yeah, the the CLR you're you're right. It's, it's confusingly named because there's no actual ratio there. It's just centered logarithms. It should be called centered logarithms because we take the logarithms of the um, relative data and then we center them. And centering yes. them in, involves like ratio before the logarithm or subtraction after the logarithm. But these are just centered logarithms, right? Yes. But when when you talk about the um, what's it called VLR the VLR variance of log, log ratio yeah yeah so then you have actual log ratios because you divide like one column by another column correct right element wise and then then you get this vector of ratios then you can uh, take the logarithm and take the variance of, of this vector the sample variance and why why is this a good metric what does it show. Well, what's really nice about this is that it uh, it is irrespective to relative or absolute nature of data. And I wish I could give a very good, coherent explanation for why this is the case, but I, uh, I encourage people to try it out just and see empirically for themselves that if you take a data set 
and you calculate the variance of the log ratios, you get certain numbers that describe the relationship between your variables, your columns, whether they're genes, transcripts, etc. And then if you make those into percentages, if you normalize them, say, by uh, total sequencing depth, and then you calculate the VLR again, you find that the VLR is the same. It gives you the same answer whether you're looking at absolute data or you're looking at relative data. So there's something very pure about that metric. And that is exactly because we take the log ratios, right? Log ratio removes any, any common scaling factor. Yes. But the variance of log ratios, uh, what is it supposed to measure? So if you consider this case, so if we have a, a ratio, and if that ratio is 1, if that's to say transcript A and transcript B are always the same amount, so their ratio is 1, and you take the log of that, you have 0. So per perfect equality between two transcripts, e equivalent amounts would be 1, and the log of that would be 0. So if the ratio is always 0 then the variance would be zero. Alternatively, if there's always twice as much of one transcript as there is of the other transcript, the ratio is always two, and the log ratio would always be log two, but again, the variance would be zero. And so we can come to see that if the transcripts, if the ratio between two transcripts are the same no matter what, then the variance of the log ratio is zero. And that would suggest that they are in some type of coordination with one another. And so the VLR becomes a way of measuring coordination that works for both relative data and absolute data. Yeah, but the, the problem is, of course, it's never zero. And then, like, how do you interpret a number that is not zero? Like, how do you interpret number five? Yeah, correct. This becomes a problem. And an, an additional problem is not just the interpretation of these numbers, but also the fact that the variance of the log ratio is sensitive to the variance of the individual things within that ratio. And so you can imagine that if transcript A is particularly variable, then just by chance alone, the variance of the log ratio may be less tight because one of those genes has more variance within it. So how, how do you address this? Yeah, so this is where we're, so now I think we're, we're coming into where proportionality sits and where proportionality analysis sits. And mm -hmm. how I think of proportionality as a collection of metrics, a collection of measures, is a way to try to put this VLR, this variance of the log ratio, onto some sort of coherent human interpretable scale. And we do this by correcting the variance of the log ratio in a number of slightly different ways, but it essentially it's an adjustment of the variance of the log ratio by the variance of individual features or genes, transcripts. Specifically, the variance adjustment used is the variance of the centered log ratio or some other type of log ratio transform data. Yeah, let's let's talk about one of the proportionality metrics. What's what's your favorite one? So your package, I think it defines two, right? Uh, phi and uh, and rho. Correct. Yeah, there's a there's a third one also, which I'm not sure if it's actually documented, but it is implemented now, which is a symmetric variant to phi. And but yes, right. I'll, I'll, 
broadly the the two differences between them for the most part is that phi is much more similar to the VLR in that it ranges from zero, meaning perfect proportionality, to infinity, meaning no proportionality. And it has an advantage in that it's analogous to a distance measure, where you can think of uh, the closer two things are in coordination, it's like being close in distance and you're near zero. The other one, which I have a slight preference for just because it... it to me, it's more analogous to correlation is, is the, the metric rho. And so rho varies from negative one to one, where either negative one or one indicates perfect proportionality and zero indicates no proportionality. Yeah, I, I, I like rho more too, <laughs> to be honest. So it is indeed like very similar to, to correlation. The way raw is defined is that we take the covariance of the logarithmically transformed vectors or, or maybe CLR transformed vectors and divide uh, the covariance by the half sum of variances of these vectors. So this is somewhat like correlation because in Pearson correlation, we divide the covariance by the uh, geometric mean by the square root of product of variances, but here we divide covariance by the um, arithmetic mean of variances. So do you have any insight why why does it matter? Why should we not div divide the covariance by the geometric mean, by, but by the uh, arithmetic mean? Yeah, this is a really good question. And uh, I'm going to cop out a little bit by saying yet again that I'm not a mathematician. I'm a biologist turned programmer. And so I don't always have the best uh, articulation of the theory for why, but I can give you a, a practical sense that I have of, of the difference. And as I understand it, rho, as you described, doing this uh, arithmetic mean versus Pearson's correlation, doing this geometric mean in that denominator portion, the effect that rho has over Pearson's correlation is that it only calls proportional things, things that have linear relationships in log-log space. So correlations can sort of have, uh, you know, any sorts of shape, the, the, um, the, any line and essentially any way you can draw a line gets, gets called a, a correlation. For something to be proportional, again, when you're looking at log transform data, it has to be uh, a line with slope m equals 1 and any intercept. So it has to be a, a uh, straight 45-degree angle line. Yeah, but I think that's uh, specific to the log transform, right? So once you, once you take the log transform of the quantities, right, you have the effect that you described. So we should make it clear that you should not, like if you take the correlation of, um, of different transcripts, in your RNA-seq experiment or something like that. This is actually applicable to uh, many more genomics experiments, right? So we can talk cheap-seq, we can talk like 16S RNA sequencing, um, some metagenomics analysis, whatever. If you want to compare two columns in this matrix, if you want to compare, um, let's say, two genes, you should not take correlation of the um, raw count data or even normalized count data, you should 
transform them logarithmically, right? That's what we're saying. Uh, or, or maybe apply the CLR transform. But once you apply the CLR transform, right, and, and you, then you, have, you, you still have to compare them somehow, these two columns. And so one way to do that is to uh, have this raw metric, which is defined as this um, correlation-like thing, except uh, instead of the geometric mean of variances, we have arithmetic mean, mean of variances. But I think they're pretty similar in this regard, as long as you apply them to the same data, to the logarithmically transformed columns. So I'm curious uh, if you know any difference between the uh, normal correlation and this arithmetic correlation. Should Maybe there is not much difference. You should just, uh, in your package, you should implement like normal correlation of, uh, of the logarithms. Um, yeah, this is this is a good point, and this is something that has been done. I, th- I think I think um, Spark is the package looks at uh, correlations of centered log ratio transform data, and I think there is a way to do it in uh, the Aldex two package as well, which is a which is a compositionally compositional database uh, approach. Um, you raise a good point that that this is this is something that could work, possibly does work. I have the intuition just from looking at data that there's something about the correlation coefficient when applied to centered log ratio transform data that still gives spurious results, and I, I'm not exactly sure why that's happening, but empirically, this is something that I've seen. Uh, and the way that I assess this is that I have a, some absolute data set, some sort of real counts, and I sort of artificially constrain it to be relative, and then I run a number of different analyses and sort of benchmark it. There seems to be something about uh, proportionality specifically as opposed to correlation that even when you're working with log ratio transform data is more precise and is less uh, falls less victim to this, spir- this detection of spurious associations. Uh, very interesting. So I think if you investigated that, that would make a great paper, actually, because I'm thinking about the uh, Pearson correlation, and it's like as ubiquitous as you could wish, right? Like right. everyone's uh, first uh, choice is to compute the Pearson correlation. And on the other hand, we have this correlation-like thing, which is like slightly modified correlation, which is um, the covariance divided by the arithmetic mean of variances. And like no mm-hmm. one knows about it. Like I was trying to maybe find how it's called. So I Googled, I, I tried to Google for something like covariance divided by, uh, you know, sum of variances <laughs> or, or um, average variance. And there is nothing. So it's very little known. Uh, no one uses it. It has no name. Yeah. And yet they're they're quite similar. So it is very interesting if one has some properties that the other doesn't have. It's very interesting how they compare. So I think that this is, this would be a, a great research topic. The the closest thing I think to this, and this is I I think uh, Dave mentions this in his paper, and I know certainly Jonas does in in his that it is slightly similar in form to. It's called Lin's concordance correlation coefficient, so the CCC. And 
it differs though in that the CCC uh, is a was made as a specific test for two features to co- not only just correlate but to specifically correlate along y equals x plus zero. So that line, 45 degree angle line through the intercept. Now you distort this slightly to get rho, and what rho becomes for is a test for uh, any um, two pairs, whether or not they retain a slope of one. Yeah, so by the way, how, how does proper uh, fit into your research? So you're doing your PhD, is proper like the actual subject of your PhD, or did you need this as a tool to do something else? Yeah, um, it's a big part of my PhD and not just proper, but also some downstream stuff uh, that Dave, Jonas, and I are sort of working on together. Um, one thing that will hopefully come next and is sort of on, we're beginning to roll it now is differential proportionality analysis. So sort of the same way you can do different tests between differences in correlation, you can sort of uh, derive some sort of way of testing differences in proportionality as well. But my ultimate goal where I hope to use this, where I see it as being used, is in um, multi-omics analysis. And I I think that there's something potentially really valuable about being able to lift yourself from the burden of having to normalize your data, which may allow integrating multiple types of data in a way that is otherwise unachievable. Right, yeah. That's that's a big problem in integrative uh, data analysis, right? That uh, you have all these data, but uh, they're part of different experiments. So um, different normalizations apply to that. So, but I, I think it's a very tough problem to just say, I don't care about any normalization. Right. Yeah. I've, this is something that um, I've always sort of struggled with is how normalization is done, why, it's, why normalizations are done. I, I've always felt that a lot of times they're picked somewhat arbitrarily and that's always made me very uncomfortable. And I'm very much attracted by this idea of trying to sort of step away from normalization and sort of just looking at data for how they are rather than trying to push them into some sort of confirmation that we want them to fit. But this opens up a realm of other problems in in trying to do this, of course. What can one do with the uh, with your proper package so one thing uh, i could do i guess is just compute the correlation this um, not correlation but proportionality or something close to the correlation of the logarithms of um, two columns of two features like maybe two isoforms in in rna-seq experiments but there are more things that you can do so for example you give um a demonstration of how one can do clustering using proper. Can you describe in some detail how that is done? Clustering in proper works um, very much like cluster and correlation coefficients. So if you have some sort of matrix of, of genes, uh, you know, 10,000 columns, and then you compute 10,000 squared correlation coefficients, or in this case, proportionality coefficients, you can cluster them and find uh, groups of genes or transcripts that are related with with one another uh, based on 
their proportionality coefficients. So, you know, gene A is proportional to gene B and also gene C. So this forms sort of one module here. Um, in the case of rho, the, the native infl- implementation proper is to just simply do one uh, cluster based on the distance measure of one minus the absolute value of rho. This is typically how people do it in correlation clusterings. Um, on the case of phi, which as I mentioned, goes from zero to infinity, uh, you can just sort of cluster on phi directly without any type of other modification. It does appear that the, those two approaches to clustering more or less kind of approximate one another, which is, which is reassuring. But uh, yeah, I'm very much interested in, in sort of using this information to try to find gene modules and gene networks. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the implementation of uh, proper you decided to write it in uh, C++ and expose it to R through RCPP. So I'm curious, was the R implement, like pure R implementation too slow or was it too memory inefficient? How, how, how did the two compare? Did you get the large benefit from writing in C++? Yeah, um, R, I, R is great. I work in R most of the time and it it is really the uh, the standard for bioinformatic analyses, I think, for the most part. But it suffers tremendously from performance issues. Uh, it has to do with this this property, which is called copy on modify behavior. So whether you realize it or not, nearly every action you take in R essentially creates a copy of the object. And so this is copying data from one place in RAM to another place in RAM. And this is fine when things are just a couple kilobytes or maybe even a couple megabytes. But when you're dealing with 10,000 gene squared or 40,000 gene squared um, proportionality matrix, um, we're we're talking about gigabytes worth of information. And, And if every time you manipulate that object, you create a five gigabyte copy uh, yeah, it becomes very, very slow and very RAM inefficient. Right. I so think- I think the idea is that you shouldn't actually modify. Like in your in your work, why do you have to modify this matrix? Like I think the the, the way it's usually done is that you use some uh, standard R function, which is usually vectorized. Mm-hmm. It computes the whole result in one go. So in your case, you use things like variance, covariance, uh, arithmetic operations, which are vectorized in R, and so you don't have like to to modify every single element. Yeah. So the variance calculation would be quite fine because this is essentially uh, vectorized quite well in R. The issue becomes when you're calculating proportionality, you create a variance matrix, and then you have to divide each element of the variance matrix by the variance of the centered log ratio transformed data. So you have to modify each ij element of the matrix by some function of the i and the j element. And so this is not straightforward to vectorize in R and dare I say not possible, although someone with more uh, experience might say otherwise. Um, and doing it in C++ is just after a, a, a bit of a learning curve, I think it's actually easier to do than it is to try to get this sorted in R. The uh, the performance benefit also is really not one to uh, to speak mildly about. 
based on on some of the benchmarking results that I've done, I, I, I think after the C++ implementation, I got something close to a thousand times uh, gain in performance. So stuff that was taking a day or so to run was now down to minutes. It's it's quite impressive. Well, wow, pretty cool. I noticed when, when I was installing proper on my machine, it actually took a while to, to compile. So uh, is there like a lot of code in the package? Do you use any external libraries that take long time to compile? Do, do you know why that is? Hmm. There are a few external libraries, but I tried as much as possible to not install external libraries unless they're needed. So you'll see that some of the functions will will give courtesy reminders, like if you want to access this particular method, then uh, please download this package. That way I, I don't bloat people's install if they're not going to be using every feature within the package. Generally, programs that, that use um, RCPP tend to take a little bit longer to install, and um, R does use uh, RCPP. It also has dependency on at least one package that also uses RCPP, and so this does increase the install time. Uh, I'm not sure how much this slows it down, but there is there is a fair bit of code in the package, although a lot of it's actually in the form of unit tests, so I've been quite meticulous to... Uh, every single function in proper is is doubly computed using different methods to make sure that there's no silent or hidden bugs that creep in and, and mess up anyone's analyses. Let's me sleep at night. <laughs> okay. Um, what do you think was the uh, single hardest part in your work on proper? Um. You know the biggest challenge is 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 very much lately now communicating and it, it's it's a hard it's it's interesting because in some ways I think the problem is arithmetically rather simple but it's it's so conceptually unintuitive and so it it was really hard for me to understand what these functions are and what they do what these equations mean um and likewise, communicating that to a wider audience has been a really challenging issue. It's This is uh, one of the first projects that I've ever been on where I don't have an elevator sales pitch for what I'm working on. It, it, it takes a conversation. <laughs> it takes a dialogue like we're having here, um, I think, to get, to get somewhere. And this has been difficult. <laughs> and I'm still learning on, on how, to, how to talk about this. Yeah, maybe next time you have to explain what proper is, you just point them to, to this uh, podcast. <laughs> I, I very much plan on doing that for sure, yeah. Awesome, yeah. So I think we'll be wrapping up. Is there anything uh, you would like to uh, promote or talk about? Yeah, I think um, one question that, that people maybe would have is, is how can I start using this now or, or, or what, what can get this give me? And we did sort of talk about this a bit. Um, calculating proportionality matrices uh, is analogous to correlation matrices. One way that I've been using it with some of the projects that I'm in, and, and I think if people are looking to get started with proper, I think this is a good place to begin, is using proportionality uh, as sort of a, a network, a, a lattice through which to understand differential expression analysis. And so uh, differential expression analysis is a pretty standard part. But I think there's an important uh, piece of the picture missing with, with differential expression analysis and that it shows you what's different between the groups, but it doesn't really show you how those 
things which are different relate to one another. And now on quite a few separate data sets, we've used proper to build uh, proportionality networks and then superimpose differential expression results on top of that. And we see time and time again that it's not just you have 100 genes that are differentially expressed, but that you have modules of genes that are highly connected with one another that are differentially expressed. And among those 100 genes, you might have a um, highly interconnected module of 30 genes that are all going up together. It's not a single gene going up. It's 30 genes going up. And likewise, you have a whole module of genes going down together. And I think this adds a, a new level of um, a new dimension of, of understanding um, from from the data. So should we expect another package that will make this kind of analysis possible? Because I, I imagine it's not as simple as compute the proportions and then uh, apply a differential expression package to like, I don't know even what, right? The, the methods of like detecting differential expression between networks or between modules is probably quite a bit different than for individual transcripts. Uh, do you or anyone you know uh, plan to work on this? Ah, uh, yes. This has not been the, the route that I've taken. Uh, I've been looking at it a, a bit more simply as computing differential expression, say using classical ways, maybe like a software like Edger. Uh, I also highly recommend this software Aldex2, which is a compositionally uh, based approach to differential expression analysis. It uses centered log ratio transformation. So computing differential expression first, and then computing proportionality separate, and then sort of using proportionality as a lattice through which to interpret and understand differential expression rather than doing a differential expression of modules per se, although I do very much like the idea of that. So when you use a package like Edgar, what do you apply it to? Do you take the, uh, like the average expression in the cluster or do you take one representative from each cluster? What do you do there? If I were to use Edger, I would do just a full differential expression analysis. So I would use all um, all genes, all columns, maybe imposing some sort of filter for for lowly abundant counts, since they they tend to uh, be less inform potentially less informative and can mess up proportionality analysis. But uh, then I'll do a ordinary FDR correction, um, and then separately I will calculate a proportionality matrix, filter that proportionality matrix to include some of the most proportional uh, genes. And then I've really liked visualizing this through graphical networks and kind of showing these proportional modules. But it turns out that a lot of the pairs that are proportional often have uh, differentially expressed elements within those modules. That is like Bonferroni corrected standard DE um, differences. Yeah, so at the end, you like you have these two results, one from proper, one from Edger, and uh, how do you integrate those just just by eye? Yeah, there's a there's a helper function that I've uh, that I've put into proper. It's called Scipescape, and what it does is it it visualizes a proportionality network uh, as selected based on um, all. Essentially, you sign an edge between two genes if they have a proportional relationship above a certain threshold. And then it colors nodes based on whether you have DE up or DE down. And the idea behind the name Scipescape is that it, it exports the data in a way that 
works for Cytoscape, which is a really great network analysis software. It's all open source and free and available to everyone. And so I, that's usually my next step is I, I export it to, to a program like Cytoscape where I can have a really interactive um, gander at the data. Very cool. Well, Tom, this was a very interesting conversation. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.